We come in our Bibles then to First Peter and chapter 2 and verses 13 to 17, which we read this evening. Last Monday, as you're aware, Monday the 15th of January, our Prime Minister in the UK had to answer questions to a committee over why he had agreed to bomb Yemen in conjunction with the United States Air Force. His explanation was that there have been serious issues in that area and that the Houthi group bombing and attacking British and US ships in the Red Sea area had caused great economic trouble and distress. To deter, therefore, the continuation of these attacks, the British have bombed sites occupied by the Houthi group in Yemen. Some politicians disagreed with this action. Perhaps you disagreed. Perhaps you think it is a provocative action, an action that will have consequences, an action that is too harsh. And it's this issue of government and governing and our response to government that we're thinking of this evening. What is our attitude to government, national, local, international? In this verse 2, verse 53, we move into another new section in First Peter, which is again easily identifiable for us. It is a section about being subject to various parties. Three parties are identified. Governments in this paragraph, employers to the end of chapter 2, and then husbands in chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. And I know all the men will be along here next Saturday evening to, to hear about that. Okay. There's two sides to it, though. Okay. This clear structure lends support to the view of some commentators that First Peter is a collection of sermons by Peter. Here then is a, a new mini-series of sermons on subjection. Verse number 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. Verse number 18, in the realm of employment, servants be subject to your masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, in the, in the scene of the home, wives be subject to your own husbands. Such the section is an exposition, an application of the commandment to honor your father and mother. Our catechism teaches that God has established authority in the world, in the spheres of government, church, work, and home. This is how Christians are to live in society. They are to be a submissive people to the God-ordained authority within society. We're not to be terrorists, always fighting authority, or hermits, avoiding authority, or troublemakers, disregarding authority. But in this section in Peter, he's emphasizing that even in their first century turbulent world, they were to be a submissive people to God-ordained authority. We can immediately see that while we're entering into a new section in 1 Peter, and an interesting section full of amazing and, and relevant matters for ourselves. That there is a connection with the section that we're just leaving. In that last section, especially in the third simile, we saw that we are spiritual immigrants in this world. We are like Abraham living 
in Canaan, away from Ur, where he came from, but also away from heaven, where he was going to. We ultimately, like Abraham, are sojourners and exiles in this world. We're destined to another kingdom. We're belonging to another kingdom. We're moving to a better country. Having established that we are spiritual immigrants, this wise pastor anticipates the question, the difficulty in the minds and hearts of his readers. If we are spiritual immigrants, ultimately belonging to the better country, how then are we to behave in this country? What is our relationship to be to governors and rulers in this world? What are we to think of the local flawed, sinful government? If Christ is our king, what is our relation to be to to King Charles? So while we move into a new section, we can see the logical progression of the thought of the writer addressing an issue emanating from the previous section. So tonight we want to think of this paragraph. We want to think of the command to be submissive to government. And then as a fantastic teacher, great for parents, not only telling their children what to do, but but then adjoining reasons. And the Apostle Peter joins four reasons in this paragraph why we should obey this command of submission. And then brilliantly, he stands back once again, as he did this morning in our study, and he looks at this, and he sets it in its proper perspective. Some people get fascinated and attached to this study of of Christians and and governments. But, But Peter will show us that there's there's a lot more going on. There's a bigger picture here uh, that, that we're to see. So first of all, um, this command to submit, verse 13, it's, it's really clear, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The command to submit to government authority in verses 13 to 17 comes on two levels. There's the general and broad command under which this command fits, that we're to submit to all the God-ordained authority. That's what the meaning of verse 13 is, to every human institution. That refers to government in the state, yes, as we'll see tonight, parents in the home, elders in the church, employers in the workplace. Submit to every human institution. The term be subject or submit means more than to respect the authority, doesn't it? It means to obey it. It means to demonstrate, to prove, to exhibit that we are under the authority of the God-ordained human institution by obeying it. God has established such authority for the orderly functioning of human life. And nor are we to think of such authority as the result of the fall. Because... There is still authority among the unfallen angels. We read of archangels and cherubim and and different levels of authority that the New Testament speaks of among the unfallen angels. Here is authority established by God. And we are to be submissive to every human institution. But particularly in these verses... 
We have three areas of authority mentioned as we've already outlined. And submission to each of those is emphasized. Perhaps there is a a third body. Chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 speaks of of people being subject to the elders. And maybe verse 8 of chapter 3 to 4 verse 21 is a parenthesis on suffering. And so we can line up these four bodies or groups, governments, employers, husbands, elders. Peter here identifies two extremes of the tiers of state authority to be obeyed in verses 13 to 17. He mentions the emperor away at the top. He mentions the lower tier of local governors. And he calls on his readers and all Christians through the centuries to be submissive and subject to them. The submission to state authority commanded here does not mean, of course, the approval of everything that the state does. We do not have to approve the bombing of Yemen or the transport of immigrants to Rwanda. Further, our supreme submission to Jesus does not mean or require disobedience to the state in every instance. The midwives in Egypt disobeyed the command of Pharaoh The wise men did not obey the command of Herod to tell him where the babe was. The apostles disobeyed the Sanhedrin ruling not to preach, saying we ought to obey God rather than men. There was sin involved in those instances, but in every instance where no sin is involved, we're to be subject to these human institutions. The emperor to the governor, the rules of our land. That care, MOT, it's a real hassle these days, isn't it? So stringent now the test is, such a backlog there is, having to travel to a center so far away from our town here. But this command means that we comply with that. In our finances, we do not claim more on benefits than we're entitled to claim. It means that we're to pay for our TV license if we have a TV that we're to be honest in our tax returns, that we're to wear a seatbelt, that we're not to text when we're driving, that we're to adhere to health and safety regulations. When we make an extension to our property, we follow the building control regulations. In church, we comply with safeguarding policy, gift aid rules, disabled access legislation, our supreme And ultimate allegiance and submission to the Lord Jesus means that in everything that does not involve sinning, we comply with and submit to the government's legislation. So that's the command. Be subject to every human institution. But secondly, what are the reasons for this command and four reasons are set out in this paragraph for us being submissive to government in cases where no sin is involved. The apostle gives us a range of reasons. Firstly, Christ's example in verse number 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This phrase can mean many things. But one thing that it does mean is that this is what Jesus did. 
This is how he lived. He submitted to the government of his day as far as he could. And as followers of Jesus, for the Lord's sake, because of his example, because of his teaching, because we're committed to his way, we too will follow this command. And doesn't this transform it for us? It doesn't bring a new dimension and light into this. This is not us leaving Jesus and and, and being engaged in, in, in civil government and earthly things, but rather this brings Jesus into our experience and into this legislation here for the Lord's sake. He submitted to the Jewish laws of his day by attending the Passover each year. He did challenge the man-made rules of the religious leaders of his time, like washing hands before dinner, not plucking a sheaf of corn in the fields on the Sabbath, carrying a bed on the Sabbath day, but he submitted to the legitimate rules. He paid his taxes. He went to death, sentenced by the Roman authorities when he could have called for more than 12 legions of angels to help him. He commanded his disciples that if a soldier compelled them to carry his luggage for a mile, they should carry it for two miles. Though he was the Son of God, though he was the Lord of glory, he does not teach us to overthrow the government. He was accused of sedition. But he was not guilty. Pilate found no fault in him. So we submit for the Lord's sake to follow his example, his teaching when he was here on earth. Secondly, we submit out of recognition for God's authority. The phrase in verse number 14, as sent by him, can be understood in two ways, depending on who we understand him to be referring to. It could refer to the emperor, and maybe that's how you take it in verse number 13, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him, that's the emperor, Or it could refer to the Lord. Be subject, verse 13, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish and to praise. And perhaps the second is more likely. Who gives the local governors their authority In the lower sense, it was the supreme ruler at that time. The emperor gave the authority to the prelates and governors in the first century. But in the ultimate sense, and it seems to be the ultimate sense here, that it's the Lord referred to in verse 13, the Lord Jesus that gives authority as sent by him. And this is a second reason why we are to submit to the governors and the state because Jesus has appointed that authority and he has appointed the specific rulers within that authority. 
This is clear in Romans 13, 1 and 2, isn't it? That the powers that be are ordained of God. They are sent by him. Not only that establishment of civil government, the authority, that that aspect and and level of authority, but also each individual ruler that rules in that position as sent by him. One replacing another, one good, one one unkind, one unjust, another a God-fearer as sent by him. Maybe we don't like the policies of the Tory party and government now or what Sinn Féin will want if they become rulers in our province. But we're to remember this point. This supreme authority. Who's above them? Who's appointing them? Who's picking out the specific ruler to rule in a certain time as sent by him? And therefore it helps us to submit to that particular authority. A third reason is the purpose of government in this paragraph. The purpose of government has been established here in verse number 14 for the praise of good and the punishing of evil. And incredibly, despite the fall, God's common grace, the presence of the Holy Spirit in this world to restrain evil, This purpose has not been lost sight of even in the hearts of unbelievers. In the first century, Romans honored those who had benefited society, just as we also have an annual honors list for the praise of good and the punishing of evil. Today, murderers and thieves are often punished within countries across the world. There is a remnant, a maintaining in the common grace of God, of this purpose of government. And we are to submit to it because of this purpose. There's always corruptions of this, and many instances of this are familiar to us. Nero was the emperor at this time, when this letter was written in the first century. And boys and girls, he decided that he wanted to take part in the Olympic Games. And you could guess what happened. He won every discipline that he entered. (laughs) There was no adjudicator that was going to put him down in second place or, or third place and live to tell the tale. He was in a 10 horse chariot race and such were the rigors of that that powerful event that he was thrown from his chariot and couldn't finish the race but he still won it because they had judged that if he stayed in his chariot he would have won it governments are appointed for the praise of good and the punishing of evil and by God's absolute mercy and common grace There is still an element of this, even in the 21st century. The fourth reason is in verse 15, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people by the submission of the Christian to every command of government that he or she can in good conscience submit to. 
the natural prejudice, the animosity against Christians, and the hatred of unbelievers to us will be minimized. We will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. They will see that we are good citizens. There are issues that we oppose and contest and protest against and preach against and live against, but we adhere as much as possible to the rules of government. You remember the instance of Jesus telling Peter to get a coin from the mouth of a fish. And the text records, the text in Matthew records, the very words spoken by Jesus and telling Peter to do this. He said to Peter, to go and fish, cast your hook into the sea. You'll catch a fish and there'll be a coin in it. And what's the purpose of this miracle and this venture? Jesus says, not to give offense to them. J.C. Ryle comments on Jesus' words here. They teach us plainly, he says, that there are matters in which Christ's people ought to sink their own opinions and submit to requirements that they may not thoroughly approve rather than give offense and hinder the gospel of Christ. God's rights, undoubtedly, we ought never to give up, he says. But we may sometimes safely give up our own. The section of Scripture perhaps will become more and more relevant as the talks around Stormont progress. Our perspective on the laws that will be passed on education and budgets and ethical matters must be that whoever is in power, whoever is appointed, is there by God as sent by him. We're to look beyond the leader to the Lord, beyond the minister to the master, beyond the party to the prince of peace of heaven and earth, our Lord Jesus. And we will be helped by this as those first readers were under the government of Nero. That Christ submitted when he was here on earth. That God appoints the leaders that their purpose is to praise the good and to punish the evil. And thirdly, the perspective of submission in verses 16 and 17. Let us read these words together. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is tremendous verses to append uh, to this section on submission to government. This is Peter's pastoral sensitivity to a people under a government that's oppressive and unjust and, and, and is persecuting the Christian church. One painting in an art exhibition that I visited was off a hundred Ferraris. I was fascinated by it. If it wasn't priced at £5,000, I would have bought it. You could study one of the Italian cars. You could make out its grill, its bonnet, its wheels, 
But then you could stand back and you could see that 1970s Italian supercar in the perspective of the 99 other cars. And this is what Peter's doing in verses 16 and 17. He's he's held us up close to this command of submitting to government and why we should submit to government. And now he's pulling his readers back. He's, He's easing off the pressure to encourage them and help them and put this whole thing and duty into perspective. What a lesson it is for us as parents, as teachers, as preachers. We all easily lose perspective on issues. Often that happens because we're in the middle of them. We're up close to them. We're thinking about them all the time. The issue's consuming our hearts and our minds. My neighbor had a brilliant way of trying to get his family and friends and colleagues to gain perspective. He would ask the question in the presence of panic, what's the worst that can happen? And this gave them all perspective in that moment. And they could see that the issue was maybe just not as bad as it could have been. And here Peter puts this duty in its perspective. He thinks of the bigger picture of the doctrines that surround the believer. And he thinks of the bigger picture of the duties that surround the believer. He thinks firstly of the doctrines in verse number 16. Live as people who are free. We're free in Christ. We are redeemed. We are delivered from the guilt and power of sin. We have a new Lord. We are spiritual immigrants belonging to another country, bound for heaven. And in submitting to local government and legislation, never let our freedom in Jesus be forgotten. Outwardly, we submit to Rishi, but inwardly, we are free in Christ. Financially, we pay our taxes, but spiritually, We are debt-free. This heavenly truth balances, outweighs any sense of earthly duty. Live as those who are free. We travel begrudgingly to Downpatrick for our MOT. It's the only one we could get nearby. Let us remember and speak to ourselves on the journey all the way down there. We are free in Jesus. Outwardly, I'm fulfilling the legislation and keeping the law, but inwardly, I am free. Boys and girls, I like the story of the little boy uh, who misbehaved, and little boys do misbehave from time to time, and he was punished with scrubbing the kitchen floor. And he said to his dad, Dad, I'm bent over here scrubbing the floor but inwardly, I'm standing up. And this is the idea here. Outwardly, we're obeying, we're submitting. But inwardly, Peter says, remember, you're free. You're the servant of Christ. You're redeemed, free from sin, free from judgment, free from fear. But not completely. 
There are duties and responsibilities here on earth. And this freedom in Christ is not a freedom from earthly legislation and rules and regulations. But in fulfilling those, you are free. Free in the Lord Jesus. So, so that, is the, that is the doctrine that he encompasses uh, this command with. Yes, be submissive to human institutions, but remember to live as those who are free. But secondly, the duty in verse number 17. These, uh, this list here of rules, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And, and we see that the first and the last duty includes the word honor, honor everyone, honor the emperor. And often in the Psalms, in literature, the first and the last is placed there for emphasis. To draw attention to, especially when a word is repeated. But, but it seems that in this place, Peter is, is using a particular a grammatical device. To show that this is the least important of our duties. And so we are to imagine here with these four commands a pyramid. And at the base of this pyramid is honour everyone. And honour the emperor. And then in the middle of the pyramid is love the brotherhood. And at the top of the pyramid is fear God. Yes, we are to obey the government. We are to fulfill the duties where no sin is involved. But don't waste our days studying our relation to the state. Study more our relation to our brother and our sister in the church. And even more, our relation to God. So we are to honor and respect all people in our words and actions. Where we are to love the brothers and sisters in the church, which is more than honoring people. But above both of these, we're to fear God by following his commands. Corrie Ten Boom and her family understood this pyramid, didn't they? They feared God above honoring people. If you're not yet a Christian, you're on the lowest level of this pyramid. You honor all people. That's where you are, down at the base of this pyramid. You're polite. You're kind to all people. But when you become a Christian, you rise up in this pyramid. You're in a family. You are loved by other brothers and sisters. And you love other brothers and sisters. And you are brought into that special place at the pinnacle of the pyramid. For you fear God. In a humble, obedient, trusting manner. We follow and serve in conclusion our Lord Jesus. Who submitted when he was here on earth to human institution. And we leave this evening with the image of his love for us before us. We see him struggling under the cross, beam along the Via Dolorosa. We see him driven outside the city of Jerusalem. We see him being laid down on the cross beams at the place of a skull. And what is he doing? He's giving his life for us. He is propitiating Almighty God 
He is being wounded for our transgressions. He is being bruised for our iniquities. He is bearing away the sin of the world. But he is also submitting to human institution. Flawed, bent, defective, unjust. And we as followers have been here called to do the same. 